It's days before Christmas and all through the town. The OFAD deliveryway is about to go down. Bavink's dogmatics delivered with care. Not put in your stocking because it would tear. Hello, OFAD lads and lasses. The first ever OFAD Christmas deliveryway is underway. We'll be giving one providentially favored winner a choice of Bavink's Reform Dogmatics or a $100 gift card to Reformation Heritage Books. Entries close on Christmas Day and we will announce a winner during our show on December 27th. To enter or find more information, visit us at onceforalldelivered.com or on social media at OFAD Podcast. Open to U.S. residents only. Merry Christmas to all. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Somebody's got to talk. Hello. Hi. This is Once for All Delivered. I am Andrew Smith. And I am Caleb Castro. And we are here, you know, doing what we do. Well, today we are uh, moving uh, along from our conversations uh, that we've been having in the previous episodes on this distinction between nature and grace to kind of explore another area of that, to, to look at how they function together in the example of culture as a whole. And most specifically, what is... Uh, the relationship between the church and the state. And I was reading a, uh, a history book, a church history book from B.K. Kuyper, an old, uh, reliable, very engaging book, um, very well written, like almost like a story. He makes a, a line. Uh, I have to paraphrase it. I didn't have the book, book here with me. I just, uh, I just relocated and I have a bunch of books scattered all over. But that uh, that paraphrase he says is essentially that the the matter and relationship of church and state is uh, became a perennial issue, a recurring, constant problem that has to be uh, looked at and resolved throughout the ages of the church, and that this was a problem uh, that he states was really first initiated by. Constantine in granting tolerance for uh, Christianity in uh, three fifteen eighty three fifteen with the uh, Edict of Milan, which right there out of the gate uh, you have something that lends itself to much controversy. Was Constantine right to do that? Wrong to do that? Good, bad, otherwise? Probably you could find as many opinions as you have found, as you could find scholars that have ventured into the topic as to what exactly was going on with Constantine. And the controversy that starts there works its way out into everything else. What do we do about the relationship between church and state? What do we do with later developments in history, such as pluralism and democracy in the modern world and the postmodern world? Um, what do we do now with this, uh, 
new rising movement of Christian nationalism, uh, which has started at, which started as basically a term of critique, a pejorative that seems to have evolved into actually something of a movement. Uh, how do we deal with the doctrine of the two kingdoms? There's just a lot of questions, a lot of issues, uh, a lot of division, and a lot of uh, controversy that has ensued over these issues. And so I guess we're going to, in the way that we do, try to parse these things as best as we can. Yeah, and actually, uh, I, th- I think one one place I'd like to start, uh, maybe just, just bounce off some uh, some thoughts in, in context here. Uh, you go back to the beginning of the church after Pentecost and uh, right out of the gates from scripture. I mean, you see the church is, is persecuted and oppressed and that, that continues for a couple hundred years. Um, it, it, I mean, it wasn't until probably Nero really um, in the 50, 60 AD or so that, that the Roman government started a direct uh, getting really directly involved in persecution of uh, Christians. Before that, it was the citizenry, the citizens of, of the in the Roman Empire, as well as the Jews. Starting with Nero, persecution became something of a uh, recurring theme, as our listeners here might likely know. Um, and there were times of relative peace and, and quiet, uh, and they were left alone here and there for on occasion. But then another emperor might come up and bring uh, a further program of of persecution, and so that that was kind of the original. Uh, uh, the original uh, status of the church. And what it was, was that, that Rome had a, a concept um, in how to deal with people of other religions than their own, than their own Roman paganism. Um, they were pretty okay with, you know, people worshiping uh, and practicing whatever religion they want, as long as they incorporated the Roman gods into their system and, and you know, would, would pay honor in praise to Caesar, to the emperor. These were granted uh, what would be called a religio status, a, a, uh, a legal sanctioned uh, religion, a recognized religion. But there were aberrations in their society that they did not permit, such as uh, superstitios, basically cults. Christianity was considered a superstitio. You could hear the, the word superstition in that. And Christians were virtually considered to be atheists in their eyes because they didn't worship gods, only one single god that is exclusive of all others. The point with that, though, is that for a long time, Christianity was considered a superstition until Constantine basically granted it through the Edict of Milan that I mentioned a moment ago, uh, granted it a religio status, a permissible recognized religion and uh, and of course it wouldn't become the state religion until uh 380 with uh Domitian the 1st that's precisely the thing though that that introduces the problem christianity wasn't actually seeking a uh religio permissible status and it wasn't seeking the uh, well it's it began to gain favor and power from constantine to domitian but it wasn't seeking power and what 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 not Constantine, but ultimately Domitian I had done in making it a state religion was introduce a concept of theocracy into uh, the Roman Empire. And just just briefly here, before I turn it over to Andrew, 
I'm going to be pulling some terms uh, on occasion from uh, one of my favorite resources, the Westminster Dictionary of Christian Theology, uh, the edition from 1983, edited by Alan Richardson and John Bowden. Uh, I, I do enjoy the, the uh, really some helpful, uh, short, and uh, you could say ecumenical, so in the wider range of scholarship uh, definitions of theological terms and whatnot. The entry for Theocracy, written by N.H.G. Robinson, states, Just as democracy signifies government by the mass of the people in any society or by their duly elected representatives, so theocracy signifies government by God or by his representatives. Ancient Israel provides the most notable example of a theocracy. Since, however, the will of God is not an empirical reality, uh, as is the will of the people or of any other constitutional group, a theocracy is always more of an ideal than a fact and belongs primarily to the sphere of profession and faith rather than to that of plain practice. And so I want us to note that phrase, the ideal. Um, so it is it is not typically a realistic thing to implement. And there, there are some serious problems that occur with this mingling of, uh, of church and state, which... Uh, are going to be recurring in our conversation here in this topic. Yeah. And I think too, that's going to help inform us too, as we get into some of the modern discussions uh, regarding theonomy and the current, uh, at least part of the current Christian nationalism movement and the like. So kind of picking up the historical discussion. Uh, so what's fascinating about the about Christianity becoming the state religion of the Roman Empire in the late 4th century is this was also essentially hand in hand with when the Western Roman Empire was collapsing. Uh, and this would uh, provoke some controversy. It would provoke a movement within the Roman Empire to go back to the old gods and the old ways. If you read, for instance, the great work of Augustine, The City of God, this is basically his polemic, his defense of Christianity over and against a return to a paganized uh, Roman religion and government and culture. Um, if you read it, uh, the first time I read it uh, some years ago, I didn't know a lot about Roman and Greek myth and stuff going in, and I was a little bit lost in that first part, and then at the end he ties it together so wonderfully. And what happens is the city of God is it, it more or less becomes a, a standard classical little C Catholic work for distinguishing the kingdom of God, which obviously has major implications on church-state relations. Um, where Augustine segments the world and all of history even into the city of God and the city of man. There is the city of God, which is the church, the people of God through all ages, um, worshiping God and on their way to glory versus the city of man, which is in darkness, is in corruption as in, and is in sin, um, and eventually on the way to destruction. Now, this is not to say that the two never mingle or meet, uh, but there is a, a rather firm antithetical distinction present between the city of God and the city of man. Yeah, and really, I mean, everyone pretty much uh, except the Eastern churches really follow, have followed Augustine's lead in, in, in kind of building on that or, or 
you know, using that as kind of like a harbor or port to uh, set sail on their their concepts of, of church and state relation and also in part of culture. Um, so, so, yeah, highly, uh, highly important uh, work that Andrew, um, Andrew has said rightly. I want to make one correction. I, I'm, I was being a bit of a knucklehead. I think I kept saying Domitian, who made Christianity the official state religion in, what did I say, 380. Uh, that, but uh, it's Theodosius. Theodosius I. I wasn't thinking. Um, <laughs> but yes, I don't want to continue on that historical aspect, too. Um, onwards for the next, uh, from, from Augustine in the fifth, early 5th century and into the late Middle Ages uh, and even into early modernism, uh, theocracy was something of the default model. It just kind of just was what you do. And this is because you, you, you had, uh, I mean, over, over time, we have to say, because of, there was, of course, um, you know, missionaries having to be sent out to various areas in Europe and they were being, you know, uh, martyred and whatnot. But eventually, as, as these societies built and, uh, and especially as the, uh, dogma of of the papacy, uh, papal supremacy, uh, was developed further and further. The relationship between church and state kind of grew along with it, with the doctrine of the uh, the dogma of, of uh, papal supremacy. So that's all to say that pretty much you had such a Christianized population in Europe that even the rulers were something of nominal Christians. Uh, or even true Christians, uh, and so it just kind of was expected then that, uh, and as as simply the way life was in that period, what your king was is what you are. And so if your king is a Christian, your leader is a Christian, you are going to be a Christian. This would go on then and, and continue to develop even as uh, Protestantism came about. Uh, and and if your your king or ruler became uh, a Lutheran, well now you're a Lutheran at least even just in name. So I mean it, this this was a the default mode of sorts, but it wasn't really without its problems, especially as if you will dem- uh, democratic movements and uh, modern uh, classical liberalism started to win the day. Uh, eventually, you would have moves away from state-sanctioned churches. But one of the biggest things that that really kind of um, made its mark in history against that tide of theocracy was the American project, if you want to put it that way. Uh, the moving in the, 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 the pilgrims and the setting sail to the new world in order to have uh, the liberty to worship freely. But this this has sparked a whole nother discussion and debate now in retrospect uh, from the Pilgrim Fathers in, in the United States. Was America conceived of pre-colonially as a Christian nation? Was, was it to be intended to be a Christian nation? And then when uh, America, uh, the colonies split from um, the British rule... Uh, in the 18th century, was the concept or the idea to create a Christian nation, but non-theocratic. And that is the big question. Or do we accept some of the more modern conclusions that America, as intended, was strictly pluralistic, that uh, Christianity and religion weren't really part of the, the design of the thing? Which I think if you... Look at the founding of the nation. You look at the colonial history as well as the Revolutionary War 
and the nation that emerged from it, uh, there are some important things that we need to take into consideration. Yes, you have these colonists coming from England, groups that are at varying degrees of odds with the state church in England. Uh, You have the pilgrims, the Congregationalist Puritans, you have Baptist groups, you have the Scots-Irish Presbyterians that would form the foundation for the American Presbyterian Church, as well as uh, more of the Scottish Covenanters, which would form the basis for the RPCNA and ARP and groups like it that continue to this day in the United States. Um, You do have some Episcopalians, Church of England, Um, You do have some Roman Catholics. So, you know, we have a state on the East Coast called Maryland, uh, having in mind uh, a Roman Catholic founding, at least initially. So you have all these different religious groups coming and and setting up shop in the colonies, basically, uh, hoping to practice their religion freely and have states, have governments that were amenable to that. And so some would say, well, yes, clear, yes, America was founded on pluralism, but there is one key problem with this. What do all of these groups share in common, fundamentally and basically? They are all some sort of Christian group. In fact, most of them are Protestant Christian groups of varying sorts. Um, yeah, there were some Roman Catholics in there, but, uh, by comparison, they were initially a rather small group. But then you get some that were uh, a little more, I guess you could say, radical. You do have, like, the Quakers and s- some Anabaptist presence. But again, at the end of the day, like, still, all of these groups are some kind of Christian. And so the founding of the nation, and it comes under some very church-driven and Christian influence things. In fact, you can get into some of the history of the American Revolution and the time leading up to it. You can see very much a Presbyterian push and influence towards the American Revolution. You can, one figure you could look at and check out, we won't go into him in detail here, but John Witherspoon, who was the president of the College of New Jersey, came over from Scotland, uh, the College of New Jersey, which would later become Princeton, and he was very much. Uh, oppressing for the right of the colonies to revolt and to secede and to form their own nation. Another thing that we have to deal with is in early America, while there was no nationally established state church as the Constitution sets out, many of the states themselves did have established churches. It was up until the 1830s that there were still states that would have established churches. So if you were in you know, one state, it might be an Episcopal established church in another state, it might be Congregationalist, and so on and so forth. Um, so we do have that. The other issue is, is it really feasible to assume true pluralism because all these groups are Christian, but also because so many of the other players that would later come onto the market, things like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and the like, they didn't even exist. Those wouldn't come into being until the 19th century. Islam... I mean, existed in the world, but hadn't really had an impact in America or all the other various pagan influences, native religions, things of that sort. I mean, at the time, mostly around then, if there was interaction between them and America, it was violence and it was war. So it would seem hard to say that true pluralism was the intent. There seems to be some sort of Christian pluralism 
on which this nation was founded. Pluralism within Christianity. And this touches on then yet the further problem in a civil government, what exactly should be permitted? So if you're going to be pluralistic, say in in, in America, you're going to be pluralistic, uh, where you have so many different people groups coming in. Are there some you favor or or don't? What is the line on uh, on how much uh, freedom you give them to practice their beliefs? So, for example, uh, I mean, when Roman Catholics were were often typically, if not uh, persecuted, you could say at least uh, given kind of a lesser status in in uh, you know ostracized or or uh, assaulted or whatnot. Uh, so they were given lesser favor in um, the 19th century. And this is actually, you see, uh, you see, especially with the Irish, not simply because they were Irish, but because they were also usually Catholic when they, uh, as immigrants, Roman Catholic immigrants. So they, they might be, uh, they might be oppressed or, or whatnot by, uh, or not given jobs or given the worst of jobs by uh, Protestants uh, who have, you know, lived in the United States for, uh, since its founding or since the colonies or whatever. Similarly, you know, what about, uh, Muslims, right? Uh, if they, they're, they're pretty tied to, uh, in, in their beliefs and their belief system, they're tied to the Quran and they're tied to concepts and Sharia law. How is that practiced in a country that is not run by Muslims? How much do you, do you permit of certain beliefs to be exercised? When uh, the Mormons uh, were trying to create their their own little enclave, their own little society, uh, in stealing uh, women from nearby villages or nearby towns, and to bring them back and force them into marriage uh, for their large men, for their, their for their men, this provoked uh, uh, action by the civil government to go and basically to go and confront them, and the Mormons took up arms and the, they, they had, they had it out with, uh, uh, with a militia group. And, uh, I believe also some, um, some, uh, deployed military as well. Yeah. The U S army was actually sent to Utah, um, after an event called the mountain meadow massacre, where Mormons had, uh, destroyed a wagon train from, I believe, Arkansas that, uh, and they had, you know, taking wives and children from that. Uh, the U.S. Army got wind of it. They also, there was the issue of polygamy. The United States was not willing to admit the Mormons because of their practice of polygamy. And so, yeah, the U.S. Army marched to Utah, and there was nearly a war. Uh, they were able to talk down, and eventually the Mormons had some I guess additional revelation that they decided polygamy wasn't something they really needed, so they could join the union. But but early on, it was pretty dicey. Actually, that right there is a very good example of the issue, uh, polygamy. So, uh, on what basis does someone say polygamy is wrong? Right. Um, on what basis is something actually uh, uh, considered immoral? Um, so, polygamy has has been. Uh, you know, as, as Andrew just said, um, illegal in the United States. And that, that is typically from a Christian standpoint of ethics. But the thing is, right now in the United States, there are certain movements uh, I was sharing with Andrew some time ago, maybe a month ago, some articles on basically 
polyamory on the idea of many loves, uh, multiple loves. So people in open relationships, uh, basically living with, say, uh, you know, two boyfriends and a gr- and two girlfriends or three girlfriends and two boyfriends or whatever, open relationships. There are considerations from smaller judicial courts, like say in uh, New York, that are asking the question, should uh, those in non-traditional relationships be granted the same liberties or privileges as those in traditional relationships. So for example, tax benefits, filing taxes jointly, um, like a married couple. This was the same thing that played into the factor of moving not only to same-sex civil unions, but so-called same-sex marriages. If you had, say, a homosexual couple living in a house together or something and one dies, or, or say an apartment even, how do you have uh, that same apartment continue to be leased out to, let's say, um, to the boyfriend of someone that they, you know, they weren't married to? The boyfriend, uh, let's say a guy had, had had an apartment under his name, he passes away. How does the the boyfriend of the deceased be able to continue on as the person with that lease or who carries on the legal contract with the state or with with a with a person to to uh, stay in that property well this is the same thing now that's being discussed on those in polyamorous relationships they want to move towards a polygamy so that they have uh the same sort of civil benefits as others so in a society that is not christian or influenced by christian ideas what prevents something like that from being okay? Or even now, we have this very recent example at the time we're recording this, just in the last week, uh, the Senate passed the so-called Respect for Marriage Act uh, in an attempt to codify more legal protections uh, for same-sex marriage, uh, prompted in part uh, as a reaction to the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the Dobbs decision and the belief by some that Obergefell versus Hodges, the decision that uh, legalized same-sex marriage nationwide, would be next on the chopping block. And we have now many Republican and even professing Christian legislators that, because of an alleged proper pluralistic uh, compromise within the bill, well, it contains religious liberty protections and stuff, this bill was good, and you know, some conservative ostensibly writers and the like have come out in favor of this. And so you kind of see in this brief 40,000 foot survey of the history kind of how we get into some of these issues and questions that we face in our day because we have a nation that, um, and really even in the history of the church too, uh, church and state. You know, however much we do or don't want them to, church and state come into contact. The interests of church and interests of state, sometimes they agree, sometimes they find themselves at odds. And we're living in a day now where more often than not, they do seem to find themselves at odds. And so we're faced with the question, what do we do? What is right for us as Christians? What is biblical? What does our doctrine 
and what do the scriptures teach us concerning the relationship of church and state and how, if at all, can we apply this into the situation in which we live? That last one right there, uh, I want to state that another way too. Can Christianity and Christian ideas influence the moral thought or direction in, in even just atmosphere, if you will, character of a country or of, of a government? And should it? That is all the time we have for this week's episode of Once for All Delivered, so we'll take up that discussion again next time. Just a reminder, don't forget to enter the Once for All Delivered Christmas Deliveaway. We're giving away uh, to one winner the choice of either Bovink's Reform Dogmatics complete set or a $100 gift card to Reformation Heritage Books. Got just a few days you have until Christmas Day 2022 to enter that and as always if you have any questions or comments you can email us ofadpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media at ofadpodcast that's o-f-a-d podcast and we still don't have a pithy sign-off phrase so i guess we'll leave it at that and see you next time Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.